If you have your Bibles with you, uh, go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let me read to you a couple of the words that we just sang. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You think about those words. Though vile as he may wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never, think about this, shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Um, we often talk about the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as, as a necessity for the moment in which we are justified. And we lack talking about the necessity of the work of the blood for the moments we are being sanctified. And so we miss out on the richness, I think, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, when we limit it, however monumentous it is, but we limit it to just a moment and one part, one work of the gospel to justify us and, and forgetting or ignoring uh, uh, the work of the gospel to sanctify us and, um, and to sanctify us fully and to sanctify all of the church completely um, so that that day we would be presented as a beautiful bride to our Father in heaven, right? So, with that, Ecclesiastes uh, is, um, has been quite a challenge for me uh, to, to work through this. Um, a friend of mine last night said, how was your sermon prep this week? I said it was challenging, difficult, uh, and um, in many ways not fun, in other ways it was fun. Uh, Ecclesi- I told him we're you know, preaching through Ecclesiastes. He goes, yeah, I, I understand where you're, what you're saying now. Uh, it is challenging. You know, here's what happens to me. I'm not uh, egotistical and arrogant enough to choose a big challenge. I usually do it ignorantly. Uh, and then God goes, see, here you go, you fool. Uh, this is what you chose without thinking about it. And here we are in Ecclesiastes. Uh, it has been equally challenging for me uh, to work through these texts, and uh, I pray that our time will be beneficial this morning. So with that said, let's look uh, in 1 Corinthians for just a few moments at verse, chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. It says this, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again it is written, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Uh, Let's pray as we begin today. Father, let's pray that our time and your word would be profitable for the proclamation of the word in our lives. That it would be profitable for sanctification. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would guard my heart in this moment. 
Uh, Father, that, that the words from my mouth would, um, would be your words that you would have for these people to hear. Father, that I would just step aside. Um, Father, let your word do what only your word can do. Um, and Father, we look anxiously uh, to what you have to say to us in the book of Ecclesiastes today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, we're trying to ask some hard questions about life. Some of you this past Tuesday and Wednesday night, uh, I, I could tell in our house gatherings and stuff, we're kind of going, whoa, 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 like, this is rough. Like, this is hard stuff to think through. Um, and, and that's good. Uh, we need to take a hard look at life uh, and stop just living and just doing and thinking shallowly about our lives. Um, our God is a God of depth, and I think God has equipped us to think deeply and has called us to think deeply about life. He has obviously evidenced that in Ecclesiastes by, by giving us a book that thinks deeply about life, where the author took the time to think deeply about life. Um, so we're trying to ask some general questions, some, some hard questions about life in general. And as we've talked about, the author of Ecclesiastes, who you will hear me refer to today as Kohelet, uh, that is the Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually the Greek translation of the word Kohelet, which is in Hebrew, which simply means the preacher. Uh, uh, some people believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but uh, whether he did or not, I, I, I don't happen to think that he did, but... Uh, we know Kohelet, or the preacher, uh, has already told us that life apart from God is empty, vain, meaningless, and without subst- substance, and without real lasting satisfaction. That is life. That is what Kohelet already told us in, less, in, in 11 verses. Um, I mean, that's a pretty brutal statement, wouldn't you say? You agree? Brutal statement? Yeah, it's pretty blunt. Um, it's also, though, a very realistic statement and a very realistic thing that he says. Um, now, what's going to happen now is Kohelet is going to begin strategically uh, to back that statement up. He's going to begin to say, I did this and it resulted in my thesis that all is vain, all is meaningless. And he's going to say, and, and now that I've proven it with that, I'm going to move on to something different and say that I did this, and it proves my thesis. And what he's going to do is he's going to begin to take a look at these different opportunities that you and I may take to find meaning apart from God, and he's going to say, I did that, and it didn't work. And he's going to begin with wisdom. He's going to begin with wisdom going, you may in your wisdom try to find meaning apart from God. And guess what? I did it and it didn't work. Solomon, known to be the wisest man that ever walked this earth. Right? I did it and it didn't happen. So, his main proposition that we're going to keep going back to is, Uh, That life apart from a real, eternal, saving relationship with God is empty, vain, and meaningless. Again, a brutal statement that 
Ecclesiastes is making here. It doesn't have any purpose. It doesn't have any explanation. And now he begins to prove his point. Basically, again, shutting off possibilities for, by humans to supply meaning to life without recourse to God. So how can I find meaning without having to tether that to God? And he's beginning, he's going to cut those opportunities off. So as we read, though I, I, we have to kind of preface it with this, when Kohelet says wisdom can't supply the meaning of life, don't think about some philosopher that you met while you were in, uh, in college. Uh, anybody have, you know, you don't have to share your example, but have that philosopher who uh, pontificated or just, you know, had just a grand rhetoric uh, about uh, various theories and anybody, any experience with that? Yeah, 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 yeehaw. Don't think when, when he's talking about wisdom and this, that, that he's simply talking about uh, that, if you think about wisdom in an Old Testament sense, it's very, uh, wisdom in the Old Testament was not uh, super technical, philosophical, and abstract. Wisdom in the Old Testament was very practical. Wisdom in the Old Testament really had two parts, two sides, if you will. There was a, a reflective side and then a practical side. The reflective side uh, that we see a lot in Ecclesiastes is probably the closest that we get to philosophy. Um, but there's two sides. And so don't just limit. When, when he talks about that wisdom can't supply the meaning of life, don't limit it to some grand philosophical idea. He's talking about something that's very, very practical for everyday life. So don't think that Kohelet is just criticizing the godless philosophers. Instead, he is going after any kind of human wisdom which offers meaning to life apart from God. Any is where he's headed. He's going after those who seek practical tools and instruments whereby life can be made better or meaningful. That's where he's at. I mean, we live in this age, right? I mean, this whether it's been in years past, it's certainly true today. Um, we live in an age that is trying to bring meaning to life in everything apart from God. Fame, that'll bring me meaning. Fortune, that will bring meaning to my life. If I can do the spiritual thing and I can give away a lot of my money, that will bring me meaning to life have a good family, a good moral family, and that will bring meaning to my life. Uh, if I just understand the complexities of the universe, that will bring meaning to my life. And Kohelet is saying, I did that, and it did not work. Ecclesiastes, let's read, starting verse 12. We're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to take two sections of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and then chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And yes, we're going to get through all of them uh, today, even though that's quite a few verses. Uh, so starting at verse 12 in chapter 1, if you read with me, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Uh, uh, so, sorry, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What a statement. 
14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Referring to himself there. Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, now you can see why my week uh, was so crazy, uh, working through this text and going, oh my Lord, what is he saying? Goodness, like this is God's word. <laughs> um, so, uh, we're going to seek to understand this together. Uh, today as we work through this text. Kohelet, uh, what he has done is an incredible, careful assessment of human wisdom. Uh, Here's what's interesting. You might have expected him to criticize all human wisdom as worthless, but he doesn't. And some of you are going, oh, but, 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 but Tuesday night we talked, yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. Or Wednesday night we talked about, yeah, it's, it's okay. Just, just we're keep, again, uh, Sarah said, is it okay if I title this sermon Divine Interruption? I said yes, because it's really just part two, uh, and this is going to be like a one sermon that's got 14 parts, okay? Because uh, I just don't know how to break it down from there. Uh, it's just really hard. It is one big picture, which is probably true of most books, uh, or of every book in the Bible. But uh, So what you have to do is we're building a picture here, and you're not going to see the whole thing until we get done, and, and that's just the way it is. So for those of you who can't remember a question that was asked 30 seconds ago, um, you're going to have a hard time, right? So take good notes. I, I'm ragging on some of you, because on Tuesday nights, at least at my house gathering, I get asked to repeat questions 15 times, uh, and, and some of you are saying, well, it's because we didn't understand it. Yep, okay, fair enough. But You've got under, you to you understand it, and you've got to remember, what are the questions we're asking? What is he saying? Because we're trying, again, we're trying to build a picture that's going to take some time. It's going to take weeks, a.k.a. months, to build this picture. Uh, and it will be a glorious one that you'll see when we get done. Um, but, uh, so, Kohelet does not criticize, criti- criticize, criticize all human wisdom as worthless. Instead, in chapter 2 that we just read, 
he acknowledges that there is a tremendous advantage to be found in human wisdom. There's an advantage. Now, let me, from our house gathering discussions, and if, and, 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 and he, and he, if you weren't at our house gatherings this past week, that's okay, you, you're not going to be lost uh, as, as we work through this, but let me reference that again. When we use certain words, when we're thinking deeply, words and their definitions become very important. When we think shallowly, we can just kind of say phrases and, and hope that the other person gets what we're saying. But if we want to understand something deeply, part of what that requires is understanding the right definitions. And so when we talk about value of something, or we talk about meaning of something, uh, or we talk about um, uh, something as being valueless, these are important things that we, we don't just kind of take all of those terms and throw them into a big bucket and go, it's that big bucket that I'm going to toss new ideas into and hope that somehow I come out with the right understanding. No, we have to take this word and understand that it means this, and this word to understand it means this, and then sort through Scripture with that in mind. Otherwise, we just really just come out with a big mess, which is often, I think, some of our results when we leave Scripture. It's just a big mess um, because uh, we haven't taken the time to seek out the meaning. Uh, what are they saying? What does that word mean? Um, and so, with that said, uh, we'll keep moving forward. So he doesn't write off all of human wisdom as valueless. However, he is very much aware, though, of the limitations of human wisdom. And that's where he's going to go today. Um, so, in this passage, Ecclesiastes shows us that the wisdom we may have as humans is indeed one of life's blessings, but it is incapable, apart from God, of solving the problem of life, and it is un- incapable, uh, apart from God, of supplying the meaning of life. So this is, you have to couple this, he's just talking about all this vanity, all, and how does that fit into this picture of Wisdom, and he's not saying that it is, it is all worthless. He's just saying it has a specific role. There is a value to it, but understood in the correct way. So, again, notice two parts of the discussion. First one, the first verses that we read, he explains to us why our wisdom can't supply ultimate meaning of life. He talks, excuse me, he talks about its limitations, its liabilities, um, of wisdom. In the second part, he gives us why our wisdom can't supply the meaning of life, part two. And he talks about why wisdom is preferable to being foolish, but then talks about the ultimate end to which the wise and the foolish go. So that's kind of our two parts today, okay? So first part, working through that, chapter 1, verse 12. Wisdom has limitations and liabilities. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Didn't he just say that? Yes. He just said that in chapter 1, verse 1. What's he doing? He's uh, beginning, again, I think, to elude himself as Solomon. Uh, And once again, this serves to lay claim to the fact that the author knows what he is talking about. So he's saying, there is validity, I have credibility in what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. 
going on. Verse 16. We'll skip a few verses and we're going to come back to verse 13. Back to verse 13. Verse 16. He said, I, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. So here, Kohelet emphasizes that he had magnified and increased wisdom more than all over Jerusalem. All before him, and that his mind had observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He had set out to know wisdom and to know folly, and again he is saying, I know what I'm talking about. I sat out to do this. I've collected wisdom, and I have something to say about it. Verse 13, he says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So here's what he did. Here's what we do. He sought to supply meaning to this world apart from God through the vehicle of wisdom. He concentrated all the capacities of his inner thought life to search out deeply and wisely the whole of life, to understand the whole thing. So with that in mind, that's kind of what's, what he has just done. We're going to take a look at what were his conclusions from that journey. First conclusion, do not expect to find meaning by trying to understand this world in which we live. Do not expect to find meaning by trying to understand this world in which we live. Again, verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So the scope. What is the scope of that which he has observed? It includes all activity on earth. All activity on earth. So the idea here, when he says there um, in verse 13, he says, Out by wisdom all that is done under the sun, all that happens in life, in life itself. So not only human deeds, but all that happens, all the activity of life. All the activity on earth. Um, something else we need to understand here is that for Kohelet, uh, the heart is essentially his rational or his rash, um, uh, rational faculty. There we go. Uh, it is that is his where he is rationalizing through these things. He is thinking through. For us, we probably understand that more as the mind, where we're thinking through. But that his that's his his rational rational faculty as he works through this. So here, he is searching out meaning in knowing that which, based upon what we've already looked at in chapter 1, he's trying to search out meaning in this of something that he cannot fully understand. What did we just say in chapter 1 about all of life? It is senseless. And he is seeking to understand that which is senseless. 
So he's seeking to do something he cannot understand. He also says in here that it's an unhappy business. Um, understand, Kohelet's not applying unhappy business to all things under the sun, rather to the search for understanding. To the search for understanding. That is an unhappy business. It is a fruitless one, for even if pursued day and night by the most competent persons, its goal cannot be attained. One cannot make sense out of something that is senseless. Um, I would encourage you this week to look at chapter 8, verses 16, 17. Um, will help us understand a little bit of this uh, unhappy business. It's a fruitless one. It's even pursued if day and even if pursued day and night. So, it's an unhappy business, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more in a few minutes. But this task is also given by God. So it's an unhappy business that has been given by God. Oh, I thought God wanted me to be joyful and happy. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll work on that later. It is here that we see Kohelet and his desire uh, for knowledge in this passage. Um, we see that God has given man this task. It's a frustrating task because we cannot find true happiness and wisdom and the examination of created things. So humans can't help but seek out questions to the answers about ultimate meaning in life. That's what he's referring to as the God-given task to understand, to search out meaning. This is a task that has been given to all. I mean, you're going to find that random person that's like, dude, you know, I'm just cool with sitting over in the corner and chilling. Like, that works for me. Uh, but most of us, um, most of us have a desire to get this. We may, you know, uh, suppress that. Because we're not able to find it, so we do things uh, to ease that pain of not understanding, not being able to find that meaning. So we fill that void with other things that will only be a temporary fix. But we all have this God-given task. Um, so, what is the result trying to find meaningfulness through wisdom. Kohelet says it's all vanity. A striving after the wind, a herding of the wind. You know, understand like herding cattle? It's like trying to gather the wind together and say, here we go. Uh, he says it is striving after the wind. He says that trying to seek to understand senseless things through wisdom will not bring you meaning. He says people seeking to attain things that they cannot attain. He says, this is meaningless. It is vanity. Then he says, going on further, describing this task, that the task is grievous. This is a grievous task. He says that trying to seek to understand senseless things through wisdom will not bring you meaning, but instead it's grievous. It is not desirable. It is painful even, he will say later. Think about this with me for a moment. Think about um, a neurosurgeon. Um, 
obviously taking him lots of time or her and knowledge and the wisdom and the information needed in order to accomplish the task of brain surgery. All right? Can, can you at least begin to fathom that with me for a moment? Some of us maybe understand it a little more. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's a lot. Like I, I just even beginning to understand the complexities of the human body and, and my brain's fried, you know, like steam coming out and, you know, oozing out my ears and it's like, you know, uh, mine just turns to mush. So it gets a little more simple, you know, uh, sorry. Uh, so under, think about that with me. the information, the knowledge and the w- to be able to do that. Um, and they will inevitably find that moment in their career where they have to look at that patient and say, there's nothing we can do for you. I have sought, let me think about it, I have sought out all these years of study. You know, something like, well, it really in the medical field, uh, not every field of study, or every field of of work and trade is like this, but particularly in a, I mean, think about it, in a field like that, it's not, I graduated school and now I'm done. Like, I've acquired 12 years of knowledge and now I'm done. It is, I've acquired all this knowledge to begin practicing that which I have learned and will continue to learn more as new technologies or just as my mind expands and my understanding grows deeper into that which I tried to learn over the past 12 years. And to find yourself in that moment when you say, I can't help you. And and he says, if you're trying to find meaning in this life through your wisdom, through your knowledge, it is vanity. You will come up empty every time. So with all this knowledge and wisdom, he can't solve every problem. The wise man, though, is more acutely aware of those problems in our world than the person who is unreflective. So let's go down this road for just a moment. Wisdom doesn't help solve that problem uh, for him. It presses the problem more and more into the face and into his consciousness. Let's think about this for a moment. For the wise man, the problems, the unsolvable problems of this life do not become easier to the wise man. They actually become more weight on his conscience. Because when he looks at the unsolvable, he understands even more greatly the task there that cannot be done. And it weighs heavy on his conscience. So again, stepping back to the neurosurgeon, all this knowledge, all this, that, and to say, I can't fix that problem. So he understands more greatly than those of us who do not have that wisdom and knowledge. He understands more greatly the complexity of the insolvability of the problem at hand. So for the wise man, and this is, again, this is, we're building this picture, uh, even today, a part of this picture. 
So we are frustrated, though, by the insolvable, and we have ambition for the unattainable. That's what he's saying. So we have, we have a desire, and we get frustrated when we can't solve the problem, and we have an ambition for that which we cannot attain. So when we consider life under the sun, wisdom cannot supply the meaning of it. Seeking to understand all things cannot provide meaning. Cannot provide meaning. He says it's vanity. I know some of us are going, wow, sweet. That means I can just unplug and uh, go sit in my boxers and drink whiskey, right? And eat wheat thins all day. Because none of it matters. My brain doesn't even matter. Moving on, trying to lighten the mood a little bit, even though Ecclesiastes is not helping us. Seeking to understand all things cannot provide me. Moving on. Number two, the activities of this life are unfixable. I've already alluded to this a little bit, but look at verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, this is a proverb. Kohelet is elaborating on what he said in verse 14 about everything. You look at verse 14, what's he saying in verse 14? I have seen everything that is done under the sun. That everything is crooked and cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So what is distorted in the world or this world cannot be corrected, and what is missing cannot be supplied. It's crooked. Here's what's interesting. Kohelet also says that God is the one who has made it crooked. Some of you are going, oh, heresy. What is this? Look at chapter 7, verse 13. Look there. Chapter 7, verse 13. It says, consider the work of God who can make straight, or who can make straight what he has made crooked. Here's where words, again, are very important. Many of us, when we think of crooked, are probably going down the road of maybe sinful. And that's not necessarily, we're not going to dive into what he means by crooked. Maybe we can do that later. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that God has made it sinful. It's that God has made things that, from our perspective, are not understandable, and made things that from our perspective are unfixable. And he did it on purpose. Because God does nothing without a purpose. We are not meant to understand everything in this world. <laughs> Why? Why? Why would God make it so that we could not understand everything in this world? Because in Ecclesiastes, we wouldn't have a passage to write on, Right? No, we would be like God, understanding and knowing everything, right? We can dive into that a little more later, but uh, here's the point. God has made it crooked for a purpose. Doesn't necessarily mean ascribing evil to God, but it means that he has made it crooked and Ecclesiastes says 
in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So basically, not only are the activities of this life senseless, but they are also unfixable. Unfixable. If meaning is supplied to life by us being able to figure it all out, then meaning will never be supplied to this life. So our meaning cannot be found there. We'll always have questions like, what, like, why did this happen to her? Why can't we do something to help them? There are all sorts of things in this life for which there are no answers. And they are simply not fixable. So in the pursuit to understand everything in order to find meaning, we actually find that there are things in which we cannot understand and we cannot fix. And God has designed it that way. As Kohelet begins this investigation, he sought to, to collect all this wisdom and knowledge and he succeeded in this venture but found that his success came with what we're going to talk about, a deep discomfort. A deep discomfort. So with great wisdom, number three, with great wisdom and knowledge comes a price. Again, some of you are going, well, I don't want to pay this price. I'm just going to remain right where I'm at and we're good to go. No, all right? I'll just, I, again, we're still painting this big picture, but just so that no one checks out along the way. Uh, no, okay? We're, we're building a picture. With great wisdom and knowledge comes a price. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know fathers, while I perceived this also. And he goes, verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, I magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I have acquired great wisdom. Um, let, me, let me help expand our understanding of that a little bit. Not only did he acquire great wisdom, but he also observed that wisdom. Does that make sense? So he didn't just acquire this lofty thinking. He also observed that lofty thinking in this world and what it did, or what it did not do, rather. Basically, he observed wisdom and considered wisdom and its consequences. Uh, the idea of vexation here means frustration or worry. So with wisdom is much worry, frustration, and he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. So let me, let me say this. Wisdom itself is not absurd or meaningless. The human experience of wisdom is absurd. This is very crucial because when we get into chapter 2, it sets the stage for what he's talking about as concerning wisdom there. So wisdom is not absurd or meaningless. The human experience of wisdom is absurd. And some of you are like going, whoa, dude, like my brain is like, yeah, I could smell the smoke, okay? There's lots of smoke up here too, and that's okay. Uh, they've got a sprinkler system. Uh, so the following examples, let's, let's work through this. The following example shows that it is the experience of becoming so very wise that he's talking about here. It's the experience of becoming 
coming so very wise, not wisdom itself. This is important. Uh, we're going to chase a whole big circle here, and we're going to come back to that at the very end. Wisdom itself is not absurd. Ecclesiastes 2.15, he says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Chapter 7, verse 16, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. The act of becoming wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So let's just park that for just a moment, that it is this, uh, the human experience of wisdom is absurd. So moving forward, with great knowledge and wisdom comes great sorrow and pain. Let's work through this. He says the more he grew in knowledge, the more he grew in sorrow. What do we do with that? Like I thought we were all supposed to grow in knowledge and become wise and all these things. What is he talking about? Great wisdom forces its possessor to see life's absurdities. Again, let's imagine a doctor. They often have to manage this type of knowledge. Sometimes they know things that if you knew, you would give up all hope. So imagine uh, an illness and the extent of that illness and the doctor having to inform the patient of that illness. And if he was to reveal to that patient his full understanding of that illness, that patient would lose all hope. And instead, has to find a way to describe that situation, that illness to that patient, in which to still keep a level of hope uh, and encouragement in that person's. But understand the sorrow in that doctor's life in that moment. I understand where this is going, and you have no idea. Think about that. The sorrow and the pain in that moment. Um, you know, as I was reflecting on this this week, it's also characteristic, I think, of uh, or exemplified in the life of a pastor and the life of those who seek to do as Jesus called in Matthew 28 and to disciple others. It is very true there because um, I'm going to go off script here for just a moment, but you know, when you're seeking to lead someone, typically that means that you're, whatever you're leading them in, you probably have more knowledge, more wisdom about, more understanding about that which you're leading them. So that means when that person chooses to do something different than the direction that you're leading them, you understand more greatly the consequences of the decision they're making. And it's in that moment that you, you wish you didn't know. I have found myself in that moment going, I wish uh, I did not know the direction that was going because then I would not already feel the pain that they're getting ready to feel in the days ahead. So with this great knowledge and wisdom comes great sorrow. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I looked at the world, and I understood it better than anybody else. And when I did, 
the absurdities, the meaninglessness of that and what the directions they were going and the things they were thinking and the things they were doing and the activity was going on, it brought great sorrow to me. Part two. Why our wisdom can't supply the ultimate basis for a meaningful life. <clears throat> Part two is when we look at chapter two and the verses that we already read is why wisdom can't supply the ultimate basis for life. In part one, he says that wisdom can't fix the meaninglessness, and it can't create meaning. But now he says, understand, wisdom, though, is preferable to folly. Wow, like, sometimes I think he's like schizo or something. Like, just back and forth. And, and you'll, you're, we're going to get into some other crazy stuff later on. Where he says one thing, and then like the next verse, he says something completely opposite. Um, but this this makes sense as as we work through this. I, I hope it will for you today. Um, he also says, even though wisdom is preferable to folly, the problem though is that they both will suffer the same fate. They both have the same end. Chapter two, verse twelve. He says. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only, that, only what has already been done. Basically, he says this. I next decided to observe the effects of wisdom and folly. For I wandered about the sort of a... Um, so I wandered about the sort of a man who will succeed. I wondered... Sorry, let me back up. I wondered about the kind of man or the person who would succeed me and control what I had earlier earned. So you want to see the effects of this wisdom and falling. The answer is in 18 of that same chapter. He says, he who exceeds me and controls my wealth may as easily be a fool as a wise man. So this man, he's referring to that, that guy who would follow in his footsteps could just easily be a fool as a wise man. So let's move on. We'll, we'll step back for a second. Let's move on. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So it is better to be, a wi- better to be wise than to be a fool, is what he's saying. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. And you're saying, but I thought it was all vanity. Uh, I thought he said it was all worthless and meaning. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says it's still better to be wise than to be a fool. You know, when I think of that, I think of uh, Mr. T. Ah, pity the fool. Isn't that what he says? Sorry. <laughs> so Mr. T's got this down, okay? He's got this down. All right. It's the man, uh, the wise man, here is this kind of unpack this a little bit more. The wise man has knowledge while the fool lives in ignorance. The wise man has knowledge while the fool lives in ignorance. Um, basically what we have right here, I, it's, 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 it's great. His, it basically gives a superlative affirmation. Superlative is basically the, the highest degree of comparison. That's what I mean by superlative. So he, he gives this great comparison here. He says that wisdom and folly are like light and darkness. They are polar opposites. Let me pause for just a moment and, and just ask a couple practical questions. Is 
wisdom a descriptor of your person? Would someone wise describe you as someone wise? Now he's saying it's preferable. So I just want us to begin. Would we be considered wise? Do people who are wise consider you wise as well? Because here's, here's our, I'm just going to attack this for just a moment. Our motto often is ignorance is bliss. It really is. Like that's the banner that whether we intentionally fly it, we fly it. And we fly it often. Um, so I don't know the commands of Christ. If I don't know the commands of Christ, then I don't have to be convicted about my actions. If I don't know the sinfulness of my emotional ball wrecking, then I don't have to deal with it. If I don't thoroughly and deeply think through decisions, beliefs, and actions, then I can act surprised when I fail. Um, and and we, we find comfort in ignorance. I mean, that's kind of the meaning of the phrase. It's bliss. It is, it is uh, comfortable. It is, it is good. Um, but seeking for meaning, though, through wisdom and knowledge, will leave you hanging. But there is still a clear advantage to wisdom and understanding. That is what the author is telling us. There is still a clear advantage. So my challenge in this moment is just, are, are we seeking wisdom? Now, we're going to figure out how that fits into this puzzle of it's all vanity and it's all seeking after something. That, so we've got, we got to figure out how that fits into that puzzle. But there's a clear advantage to these things. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So there's a clear advantage and pref, uh, preference to having wisdom. So what is, call him schizo, what's he talking about? Something crazy. We'll get there. So here, after this, comes another very blunt point. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. This is referring back to what he's already said about remembrance and such. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. All right, let's work through this. The idea of what happens when he says... Um, what happens to the fool and what happens, he's referring to a fate of their existence. Uh, a, a fate. They will both die. I don't think that he is, I, I think it fits better the theme of Ecclesiastes that would be more a, de, a determinism, but he does not allude to that at this point. Uh, by chance or by that which is determined, and I think if the better picture of whole Scripture it is God has determined that date. But at this point, he is simply talking about what happens, that their fate, and, uh, whether by chance or by uh, something that has been determined. But his point here is that it's not what, y- y- 
it's not them doing it to themselves per se. It's happening to them. The idea of that, whether by chance or by determined, that this event will become a reality for both of these parties. So he said his observation was both the fool and the wise alike die. They both die and are forgotten. So what is there for me in terms of the ultimate things of this life? To be wise as opposed to being a fool. What, what is there then? Um, let's look at this. Some wisdom, like some labor, is necessary and valuable. But too much of either inflicts discomfort and dismay. So Kohelet, here's the deal. Kohelet's not telling us to not seek after wisdom at all. That's not what he's saying. Like he's not saying dismiss the idea and forget about it. Stay at home in your undies and do nothing. That's not what he's saying. He says, I think he's saying quite the opposite. There is a clear superiority to having wisdom. But do not seek to find meaning in it because you will wind up empty. I think that's the distinction that he's drawing. Because not only are the things of this world not understandable completely, but the things of this world, if understood, would also bring discomfort to your soul. So trying to find meaning in understanding all of this life um, is going to be fruitless. Trying to find meaning through our wisdom is fruitless. So seek wisdom because God has called us to be wise, but don't find your fulfillment there because it will only bring you sorrow and emptiness. Number three, the great leveling power of death can bring great despair. Moving on. 17, he says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. For a moment here, Kohelet came to detest life. But remember, this is important for us, this is Kohelet looking back. He is reflecting the state at which he was in at this moment in his journey. And he says, in that moment, I hated life. Um, it's one of the things I, I, I have grown very quickly to love about Ecclesiastes. It's just his ruthless honesty. He says, I hated life. See, see, we live in this Christian world where we just want everything to be okay, right? We just want it to be grand. And, and if, I, if I, for a moment, question God, then, oh, goodness, you know, I'm the most evil thing on this earth. Um, or, man, if everything isn't just perfectly in place in my life, then... And so what happens then is we begin to pretend like everything's all perfectly in place in our lives and that we perfectly understand God and then we just ignorantly proceed forth with our lives you know david a man after god's own heart read some of the psalms he's going god where are you like for some of us if we were to say that like we're like whoa i must be far from god uh 
Sometimes we have to have that moment where we go, God, where are you? I mean, God knows that's on your heart anyways. I mean, you understand that, right? You're just trying to cover over something that he can see very clearly. So all you're doing is fooling yourself and continuing to live in down, going down that dangerous path. Now, obviously, there, as just with Kohelet, there comes a resolution. It just doesn't happen for another ten chapters. <laughs> so we get to see, basically what we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes is his heart being spilled open. And he's saying, God, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It is all meaningless. And you have given us this task to do. Don't see it. And I think there's an honesty that is then later rewarded in his life. Um, but it's because that problem is being addressed. Instead of just covered over. So, remember, Kohelet is looking back. Um, as his account moves forward, he tempers his frustration with the dis, uh, discoveries of with the discoveries of good things, um, his affirmation. Just so you don't worry, uh, his affirmation of life grows stronger as he goes. But for the moment, and if we're st- and again, if we're so quick to get to the resolution, we miss the depth of what's going on in this moment. He hated life. He hated life. Kohelet is saying it doesn't matter how wise you are, if you live this life apart from God. This is the one truth you must face. It all leads to death. I heard a story of, of a preacher said, uh, talked about this family who liked to play Monopoly. Anybody here like to play Monopoly? Anybody? I got a couple people. I love playing Monopoly. Uh, it takes hours, and I like to win. Uh, and so m- most people don't like to play Monopoly with me um, because I am just cutthroat okay so just remember that so if you want to if anybody's up for a good game of monopoly let me know we'll we'll get together okay a lot of people also don't like to play euchre with me because i don't like to lose um i don't lose in euchre and you can put that on radio uh not typically let me back up (laughs) every once in a while someone gets lucky (laughs) all right so uh there's this family i heard a preacher tell a story uh, we're almost done. He said, um, but, but don't pack your stuff up yet because you might still want to take notes. So. so there's a story. It goes like this. The, these kids, the grandkids, would always get together to play with Grandma, the game of Monopoly. Uh, and the preacher telling the story was actually true. I just couldn't think of a cool enough story for my life, so I'm going to steal his story. Uh, so this is a true story. All the kids would gather at Grandma's house often to play uh, Monopoly. Now, this sounds like my kind of grandmother because she would clean house every time. Like there is that not there is not that. Um, well, I'm going to take it easy on them so they don't lose heart. You know, I'm going to let them hit me every once in a while. No, no, no. She cleaned their clocks every time. Uh, so none of the kids understood the concept of of uh, uh, buying cheap and selling big, right? And they wanted to hold on to their money. And in Monopoly, you can't hold on to your money. The savings account does you very little good. Um, it is about bringing in finances through the properties. And so, uh, now I just gave away my trick. I'm not playing any of you in Monopoly. Uh, 
So, anyway, so they're all trying to play Monopoly with Grandma, and she cleans them out every time uh, until one of the boys, he's, I think he says he's like 13, 15 years old, uh, starts to figure out what it is that Grandma does to win this game. And so for the first time ever, one of the grandkids is now winning at the game of Monopoly. And they're beating Grandma. And he doesn't just want to beat Grandma, he wants to clean her clock. So he goes after it. And he leaves her at the end of the game penniless. No properties. He just wipes her out. And in his celebration and in his glory in that moment, the grandma looks at him and says, I'm glad you've learned how to beat me in Monopoly. She goes, I have one more lesson for you. She takes all the pieces, puts it on the board, folds it up, puts it in the box. And he says, she says, at the end of this life, it all goes back in the box. And the same thing is true for us. At the end of this life, it all goes back in the box. And so the finding meaning in the things of this life, um, at the end of the day, it all goes back into the box. Uh, there is not that value, cannot be found, and the meaningfulness of life cannot be found uh, in those things that at the end of this life go back into the box. So, apart from God, no life view that fails to take into the account and adequately deal with death is capable of supplying the real meaning of life. Here's the key for today. Only transcendent wisdom can meet the demands of a transcendent reality. This is why Jesus is the only wisdom that can make life meaningful. Christ. Have you heard it said that he became our wisdom? I want to challenge you to look that up this week as in preparation for house gathering this week and, and just in your own study. Look, look, look this up. What does it mean, Christ, to be our wisdom? So we live in a world that is far beyond our perception. Even all of our perceptions combined, this world is much, much greater. Our God is transcendent of our reality, and wisdom that we need must be of that as well. That's where we find meaning. Because seeking to understand this world apart from God, and later we know as Christ, we will come up empty because all of it goes back into the box. So, let's pray, uh, and we'll be, uh, we'll be dismissed. Father God, I pray that we would abandon our efforts to find meaning in this life apart from you. Father, that our, our effort would solely 
exclusively be wrapped up in you. Father, that at the end of the day, we could with all sincerity in our hearts, from the depths of our soul, sing the phrase, all I have is Christ. He is our wisdom. He is the one whom we want to know. And through him, he reveal all things to us. He holds the keys to the kingdom. Everything is the footstool for his feet to rest upon. And Father, I pray that in our lives, that you would make them a display of the gloriousness of your Son. That you would change our lives in such a way, and our wisdom and knowledge in such a way, and our seeking of wisdom and knowledge, that, that it would be done in a way that brings glory to your Son, to your name ultimately. That it would be display of your work in our lives. Father, let us stop trying to find meaning in other places. And instead, find the richness of wisdom that only comes from you. And in that, we find meaning in you. Father, we give you praise. Father, let's pray that you would take these words and help us to apply these to our lives this week as we think more deeply through these things. We did not solve everything today. Everything is not as crystal clear. I know there's things that are still muddy, and that's what the body's for, is for us to work through these things, for us to help each other understand these things. And, um, but Father, you have given us these words for a reason, There's a purpose. Ultimately, that purpose is to glorify you. But Father, in these next days, help us to understand your word in a way that we might be enabled to bring glory more greatly to your name. And Father, thank you for this time. And uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a uh, blessed day.